Okay. So, will you um, introduce yourself? Here we go. <laughs> Here we are. Max, thanks for coming. Sure. Okay. Um, and we'll talk loud. Okay. Good afternoon or early evening, everyone. Um, I'm Max McGrath. I am the uh, IT here at UAA. I'm on staff. I work for IT Services. Um, we're joined here today by Johnny Johnson, who's our lead uh, messaging and active directory identity management, I guess, uh, engineer. Uh, and uh, uh, Rachel was so kind to uh, ask him to speak about uh, IT systems uh, here at the university and uh, security. And uh, it's, when, you, when I think about, uh, you know, the university campus, I think about, you know, Openness. I mean, we have this wonderful open view, open areas. Doors are open. Uh, it's um, being asked to secure something like that on a network. It's sort of a contrast of terms and, and um, raises certain challenges. My, I'll just give you a bit about my background. Um, uh, I started uh, uh, as a Microsoft uh, help desk person, workstations. Uh, server engineer, uh, worked my way up, and uh, I worked uh, in the banking uh, sector, um, and uh, sort of came into IT as the IT boom happened around in the late 90s, and uh, when I, I started at, at this bank that I was working at, uh, the internet was still fairly new, um, people were hooking, plugging into it, they did not have a firewall. This is at a federally insured bank. <laughs> so uh, it was um, uh, kind of interesting. Um, when uh, I arrived here, I've been working at the university about two years, two and a half years. Um, there are firewalls at different places around the network here. Um, there wasn't sort of a um, state-of-the-art firewall uh, that could control and detect and block some of the threats that we're seeing today at the university. So I got, So it was sort of like... I sort of, when I got here, sort of like uh, taking a step backwards technology-wise, and just, um, but that's, and that's not a knock on, on, uh, on anyone. That's that's sort of how um, higher ed uh, institutions um, have uh, evolved. Um, typically, open, uh, disparate uh, systems, often independent IT groups, uh, given money to go and do kind of what they want to do, and they're doing the best they can to support the mission, which is education, research, uh, and then, of course, there's the, the business that you know, keeps all of that going. So, um, uh, I've been working in the IT world for you know, the better part of 20 years, and uh, moved back to Alaska about four years ago, and uh, like I said, I started with the university a couple of years ago uh, in a dedicated security role, and so... Uh, what's exciting to me about being here is that there's sort of endless opportunities to uh, improve the security uh, footprint. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, our, our CIO at the time said it is a target-rich environment. Um, so, you know, how do you keep, uh, you know, you've got basically any, anyone can bring their own device and connect to the network. We've got students that are bringing their own device. We've got staff and faculty that bring their own device. We've got labs. We've got visitors. We've got Sharing. How do you how do you do all that? Keep everything up and running, and uh, you know, not be brought to your knees by you know vulnerabilities, viruses, malware, and that sort of thing. And, and so, um, 
one of the first things that we were fortunately able to do was to implement a uh, an application firewall, which basically is a, a, a very advanced firewall that can uh, be it's updated uh, hourly, and um, the vendor we choose uh, chose uh, basically works with all of the Microsofts and Cisco's of the world to uh, as their as their vulnerabilities are found out to engineer those into the firewall to block those certain vulnerabilities. So it actually looks at the traffic and says, oh, we know about this, this is a bad thing, we're going to just stop. Um, generally, uh, I would say, if I had to categorize the networks at UAA, they're still quite liberal, they're still quite open. We, we, we do uh, some selective uh, areas uh, which need to be protected, um, are more of the business areas, so anything to, related to credit card transactions, the bookstore here takes credit cards, we need to protect that information. That's very isolated, um, you know, nobody can go in and out of that network except for the machines and this, the data that needs to go through there. Um, the university has other areas that, um, of uh, information that it needs to protect, and so, you know, this openness is, is a wonderful thing, but uh, we also have people's personal information, so uh, student records, there's um, even uh, some areas where we have medical records, um, uh, the College of Health, uh, dental clinic, uh, student counseling, so there's um, uh, with the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Healthcare Insurance Portability Act, uh, HIPAA uh, is, applies to the university in some instances, and then there's the, the, the federal regulation for students, which is FERPA. And, uh, so we have a responsibility to protect individuals' personal information. So how do we, how do we do all that? <laughs> uh, the, some of the challenges uh, that, that we face are uh, well, it, it was it was interesting as I made my way around to the different um, areas of university, different colleges. I was sort of met with two uh, reactions. Uh, one was, oh, you can't block anything. We you, we need academic freedom. No firewalls, no filtering, you know. And then there was another half that said, "Oh my God, we're not filtering. We don't have firewalls." <laughs> and so there was a sort of, and so um, in, in IT services, uh, we have uh, several groups where uh, some are more of the uh, educational level that are interested in IT, and then we have a more technical group that meets, and and so we try to bring these issues before those groups and get a consensus. But it, as you might imagine. With a lot of consensus, things can, uh, it comes with a lot of opinions, and some of them very good. Some of them, I mean, you know, we all have our opinions, so it takes a while to agree on those things. So, um, one of the uh, uh, so, so some of the things that um, we do in terms of uh, internet access, for example, that's sort of the biggest. You know, everyone needs access to the internet. Don't block me. I need to get whatever I need to get. Um, We've implemented some basic filtering. So we have some categories that are phishing, that are malware, that are, uh, uh, we have a, uh, we subscribe to something which is called a 30-day blacklist. And basically it's a rotating set of internet addresses out there that, that it, the common uh, people submit into a collective say that these things are doing some bad things. They're, botnets, they're scanning you, they're malicious, they're aggressive, they're attacking you, we're just going to block those out of, out of the gate. 
nobody can go there, and they can't come in here. And that's worked out pretty well. We've had uh, zero, so that's been in place for about a year and a half, and um, we haven't had one instance where someone was uh, miscategorized or, uh, or uh, you know, blocked inadvertently. Occasionally, the content filtering will have um, uh, a website that maybe um, someone puts up a file that's downloadable and it's got a virus on it, and it might go into a malware category. And so then say, oh, look, they cleaned it up. We can actually request that it comes out of the malware category and then we can have access to it again. Um, all of these uh, security... How, how many uh, how many students and faculty, Johnny, do we have at UAA now? Uh, total, we've got about twenty thousand uh, members in the community. About just under five thousand staff and faculty, and the rest are students throughout the community, so, community campuses. Yeah. So just what, what, do does each student get an uh, official sort of university email address, uh, or is it just through Gmail or? So, yes, uh, every student does get a, a university-issued um, account. And what's part of that account is an email address and then an identity that's associated to all of the different university resources. Uh, that can be including UA Online, uh, where they can check the transcripts, to literally hundreds of other um, resources that we provide for students, and staff and faculty for the most part. Everything from a, a Google email address to an Office 365 account for use of the Microsoft products. So what would it say something about UAA? Because I know I, when I just you know some college-age kids, it'll say University of well, Duke or something else, .edu or something. Mm -hmm. Is that the same thing, or is it .uaa or so .edu? Or we're or? .alaska .edu. Okay. So, so yep, anybody here that's that's got an identity, whether they uh, signed up and took one class uh, five years ago, um, or our current active staff and faculty have a, an at alaska.edu address. Yeah, and, and currently we don't delete any user accounts. And the reason we do, don't do that is because we need to keep track of the, the way the systems are set up currently to keep track of the history. Uh, and that student may become an employee, and then there's, there's all sorts of these roles that have to be transitioned, you know, for various scenarios universities. But my point about the number was, um, you know, how many, how many devices do you, do you actively use? Um, you know, you have your cell phone, that's one. If you're hooked into our Wi-Fi here, that's, that's one. If you've got your laptop <coughs> to carry out, that's two. Um, anything else? Computer. I use a lot of computers here. Right. Okay. Uh, it might have a home computer that is not your laptop that you might log into. That's three that might be connecting to the university. Oh, an so, iPad or or an iPad. iPad. You bring an iPad. So I think the average is four or five devices per person. I have thirteen. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Thirteen. That's, that's how many and, devices I've associated with uh, with my identity UA right now. Thirteen. So, so if you take twenty thousand and say the average is five, that's a hundred thousand endpoints that are potentially vulnerable, that are you know potentially insecure. So there's you know, and when you realistically, there's no way to uh, have everybody be patched and up to date and compliant because it's just not the way things are working. So what we're trying to do is stop bad behavior on the network, and we have to do some things uh, that without stopping the the process of openness. And that's that's sort of the fine line 
that we that we walk on. Um, if you're on the wireless network here, you can't attack other people on the wireless network here, which is a good thing. <laughs> so there's a you know there's some security involved uh, with the way the wireless is set up. Um, if you're a, a staff member, an employee, and you connect through VPN, you are now browsing out to the internet through the university's filters and get all of the advantages VP, of VPN? a virtual private network. Okay. So if you're if you're remoting in from uh, elsewhere, um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, some other. Uh, so. UAA recently moved from Exchange to Google. We were just talking about that as soon as you were coming in, and um, that's created some challenges for our for our group. Um, some new tools that we need to learn to use. Uh, is some work better? Most we're finding don't work as good as Microsoft, uh, but the toolkit that we had. But uh, if a phishing email comes in there lately, uh, the university has been in the last I'd say year and a half. Um, Higher ed, school district, uh, local school districts, state governments have been under assault from uh, bad actors uh, in various parts of the world. Um, and because the investment in security is typically lower, the, the resources aren't there, um, they haven't developed uh, you know, any sort of risk management or incident handling procedures, disparate systems, there's no way to kind of, so it's easy easier for, for a hacker to to get in and, and try to get uh, information out of people. And, and all of our information, I mean, and also the, the information is there on our public website. You can go and see who's in charge of the money at UAA. You, it's all listed there. You got your phone numbers, you got your email addresses, and people can create uh, emails that come in and are very targeted to someone. And people uh, often will click on those emails. We, we've done Everybody knows about phishing, right? You've, you've got a few emails, and it's not just you know a, a print somewhere that needs money to to get home. Uh, these are extremely targeted. They might look like they're coming from a president or a chancellor, or vice chancellor, saying, "Pay this bill now. It's five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, and here's the account it goes to." And and it, as much as we try to promote awareness and do training and uh, get the word out through you know various channels um, whether it's social media or uh, call center or uh, there's what we found and this is sort of the average so it's we shouldn't feel bad about it but there's always going to be anywhere between 10 and 12 percent of people who actually click on the email open it and click the link and of that 10 to 12 percent there's probably about five percent that are going to put their ID and password in. it's just always going to happen so, from an IT and a security perspective, we can no, no longer say, well, it's their fault, because there's that, just that number. We have to come up with methods to try to, uh, to stop it. So, um, one of the things we've done is to, uh, because we've gotten the awareness out, improve our response time. So the first time we see one of these things, people are sending them right to us, and we're able to get on block that link or maybe delete all the emails from the rest of the system that are targeting those particular people. I think the last one that came in, uh, we blocked it very early in the morning because someone gave us the heads up and all 1900 attempts to try to go out to that. This is university wide so it wasn't just because we're all on Gmail now. <laughs> it wasn't just UAA, it was UAF, UAS, 
Uh, wow. Yeah. So now all every- 1,900 of those attempts were blocked by our firewall. They could not get to that site, and, they, and we didn't lose any credentials. But that's a good day. <laughs> there are other times where that doesn't happen, and people go and they put their credentials. Well, in. Well, is that because of here stopped it, or would the Fairbanks stop it too? Because uh, so, uh, so to help you understand how we're structured, so I work with some of the security folks in Fairbanks, and we all can put these blocks in at the various firewalls. So we have sort of a virtual For the one team. system, for, for the yeah, one network. So, uh-huh. so we're using the same firewalls in uh-huh. the three locations to, that does this sort of protection and filtering. Do you see that we're just being attacked, like an attack? Oh, we're constantly under like attack. Like just under attack? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, that's, yeah. So by, by default, we are blocking and, and basically not even allowing all of the critically rated and high rated uh, threats and many mediums and low risks as well. So this is just things that are coming in inbound, but occasionally we'll see a machine get infected because they've clicked on a link, and now it's trying to go out. And so there's other ways we can monitor. There's organizations mm-hmm. uh, that will alert us, saying, hey, we're seeing this type of traffic from your IP address. You look like you have this virus or this Trojan on your PC. Please take care of it. And do you point, ever try to track where it's coming from, or do you just try to stop it? Like how far do? Um, it's interesting because where it's coming from is probably not where it's coming from. Oh uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So it's another compromised device on the internet that's usually attacking us. There was a huge. Uh, uh, anyone here? Everyone heard of botnets? Okay. So there was a big botnet uh, called VDOS that was taken down by the uh, FBI last year. Um, I happen to know that the team that took it down at the FBI is based out of Alaska. They got a lot of kudos for it because they they got some smart folks over there, and they figured out that Alaska is under attack. And they're like, well, that because we're under attack, that gives us jurisdiction to go and and find out about where this is all coming from. And they were able to shut that one down. So would you say us was it the university or the whole state? It, 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 this was attacking the world. Oh, really? And so what what these botnets do and why, why they why they exist is because why would they do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, because they can, but there's also monetary reasons. And so if you've got an ability to attack someone, that can be very valuable. And someone who can do that, um, let's say they have a client, one client might pay them $5,000 a month for that privilege. And I could then say, okay, well, uh, go and attack my competitor, and now I can say, look at my product so much faster and works so much better. Look at their, they're not working very well. That sort of thing. It happens in the real world. And it's highly illegal. And there's a lot of other nefarious reasons as well. I might jump up next to you. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So there's a lot of other nefarious reasons as well. Um, botnet's becoming like one of the biggest problems out there. Like Max was talking about, uh, here at the university, we, we have over 20,000 devices that are these types of devices. That doesn't count any of the devices that you might see on top of a soda machine. Um, those types of devices that sit on top of a soda machine are also connected to the internet. They're what we call Internet of Things. Uh, we have those varying from the Wolf Card machine that sits out here in the student union, all the way to soda machines, all the way to there's actual devices at the dentist's office that are all actually connected up to the internet. Um, we, yeah, bad, we, what they call bad actors can actually utilize these machines to access resources and basically create a mass attack against anything from a government to a a private corporation. They can basically take all resources that that are at hand, 
clog your pipes and make it so you can't access your data. As soon as they do that, they can get in there and they can hold your data hostage for ransom, whatever they want. So. No, thanks, Johnny. And yeah, that's a, a, an emerging area of, uh, of vulnerabilities is exactly these, you know, every, what, everything's getting plugged into the internet. So your thermostats and, and you know, your light bulbs, um, Yes, uh, your Amazon Echoes that you know are listening to you. Hopefully, just to you. <laughs> he likes to give me a hard time because I'm a big home automation guy. So my entire house does listen to me and watch me most hours of the day. Don't get me wrong; I'm there with you. I, I, I enjoy those automation <laughs> functions too. But um, I, I went to a conference um, in uh, Washington uh, a few months ago. And it was all about industrial control systems and how they're not secure. They were never there was never security written into them. So things that um, you know vendors that you know the university is hiring to look after things like HVAC systems and elevators or um, uh, trying to think uh, or even the uh, the scoreboards at the Alaska Airlines. Those those all need to be connected to the internet for some reason to get updates or for vendors to support them. And we can't just like plug them in and expect them to be secure because inherently they're not secure. Those systems never really get updated that often because uh, there's never really a chance to take them down and there's there's usually not too many changes. Oh, I can. So what, what I found was that they, some of those uh, we did, we were able to sort of simulate uh, voltage control, uh, which is also uh, now being plugged into the internet, and you could without any security, just go in and change the uh, rate limit on a, on a voltage uh, switch from 110 to 220. <laughs> Even though it can only take 110, you can change it to 220, which, guess what happens? Wouldn't that lead to a fire? It could, yeah. So that so those are some of the risks, and the industry is, is I think, that's one area where they're chasing rapidly to try to get caught up. But it seems it's becoming more, like you said, more things are becoming on the internet or more things are becoming on a network. Right. So if that trend becomes more and more dependent on these things, we're more vulnerable, no? That's, that's true. And so the, the more need for diligence and security and expertise, and that, that's why the security field in IT is, is a growing field. There's, there's, I think the last report was, how many jobs will go unfilled? A couple hundred thousand? Yeah. In the next five or so years, there'll be about 200,000 IT security jobs that are going to go unfilled. So in the it's, IT field... So if you're interested in working in IT security, it's a great field to get into. A, a, lot lot of us, of uh, a lot of us really seek after certifications for different aspects of our jobs. Um, Max here holds one. It's called a CISSP. Uh, don't ever talk about it. but um, So that is actually one of the most prized... Certifications you can get right now in the security field, and they're seeking tens of thousands of these people throughout the, the U.S. simply because it, it is a basis for being able to track down a lot of these uh, devices, rogue devices, and it's, it's a great foundation to build your education upon. Um, it is becoming a much larger realm of uh, the internet. The internet of things, just the internet in general, has now become such a large part of our daily lives. We don't even think about how much data is out there and how much people can actually access. Um, it changes every day, and the amount that we put out there, smartphones are a great example. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of the hacks that are coming nowadays, they're not targeted at computers. 
they're targeted at personal devices because they're after your personal information. Uh, my smartphone contains everything from my social security number to my credit card number. Somebody gets into it and gets a hold of the information from that, my entire identity is gone. They just made thousands of dollars. Um, so there doesn't seem to be any like um, parallel universe to this or a plan B. It seems, it seems it just go, keeps going more and more. Um, Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So I think. I, I mean, it's just common sense. Seems you should be doing maybe. Um, training. Well, you know, there's that too, but there's also I think there's still a lot to be solved in the world of security. I mean, how many logins? Uh, I I keep my logins on. Uh, I have an app on my phone called One Password. I have to pay for it, but it keeps. Uh, I, can, I keep mine in a text file. <laughs> Is that, is that a bad idea? <laughs> We're files? talking. It's on, my, it's on my desktop. Is that? So, but not supposed to do that. Yeah. So all I have 117 logins. <laughs> I don't know the passwords all. Uh, so for for me, am I am I? They're not the same. <laughs> that well. I use the same password for all 117 of those services. We'll have a talk after. Not supposed to do that. <laughs> so yeah. So and that's something you shouldn't do. So for me, what I do is the higher risk. Uh, I, I base it on risk. So if it's a bank or credit card or something, or I, on a uh, store that I trust, like Amazon, where I keep my credit card, uh, they've been okay so far, yeah, and a, you know, mostly. Um, my password will be much stronger and much different than if I'm just going on. Um, I'm trying to think of another example. Uh, Target. <laughs> right. Oh, Target. Don't keep your credit cards on Target. And <laughs> But uh, any target's been hacked four times in the last two and a half years. So just, that's why that's a good joke. Home Depot got hit last year uh, and lost over 30,000 users' credit card numbers. So I have my low-risk password that I, that I know, and I can remember that, what that is. And that's in a, like one group of logons. And then a variation that's a little stronger for sort of medium and then the higher-risk stuff I have. You know, the, the best thing you can do is a passphrase, which is uh, maybe a sentence of, uh. you know, 30 or 40 characters uh, that you can remember easily. Yeah. Well, that's but, but it's a big challenge. So how do you, and, and I think you're going to see some solutions in the next couple of years where we'll try and, like, bring all of this sort of uh, authentication together so we don't have to remember or don't end up writing passwords down or using the same password or using well, do you think it's going to so, come to buy, like, either I or, I don't know, DNA or... Well, we're looking at doing something like that here at the university. Where it's in the top. There's dual-factor authentication where you have something else and so, along with your password, something you know, or there's knowledge-based authentication where you just, you know, those security questions. Well, uh-huh. that's, that's very effective. I mean, it's not perfect, but it is very effective at thwarting, especially... Uh, in the cases where we have these phishing attacks that are successful, where people go and they put in their credentials, and immediately that person goes in and tries to log in, and get, get, then then all of a sudden they can't log in because they don't know the three questions. So it, it would stop it would stop a lot of that initial. So, so um, I have a question. That is, if you forget your password, mm-hmm. okay? So you you turn you you try to remember your password, you forget, and they say okay. Put a new password in, right? You know, you do, you do the start start again. You know, it's like starting a new account. Mm-hmm. You start again. What's wrong with just keep doing that? It's just to I, be just, just sure so for security, so you don't you Why don't you keep your password? well. If you, either you forget your password or just changing passwords, like more common, just well, for changing, security. Changing passwords is, is, is a very great idea. I mean, that's something that is, is kind of a basis in security. You want to rotate those passwords out every once in a while because. 
like Max is saying, 127 different services, there's a good chance that a few of those are going to have the same password. Get access to one, you get into kind of just get access to all of them. With the, the dual-factor and multi-factor authentication that Max is talking about, you, you get not only that password security, but you also have to have almost a second password, whether that second password be a fingerprint, whether that second password just be a little app that pops up on your phone and gives you a four-digit code. So in the event that somebody does compromise your password, well, you still need to change your password, but they're not going to be able to get access into your accounts. The other reason you really want to be careful about passwords is they, they are guessable. Um, nowadays, when you start to think about uh, cryptography, uh, a lot of people don't think about cryptography as something that we really have to worry about anymore. Like, oh, if I make my, my password 12 digits, whatever, nothing is going to get into it. Ten years ago, that was true. Uh, a 12-digit password ten years ago would take two to three years in the most powerful computer in the world to crack. Now a 12-digit password can be cracked in two to three minutes. Because of the computer, it's a possibility. Of, yeah, yeah. Because of what we've been able to build and the, the society that we've been able to you know, really do this cloud computing and, and make these very large-scale server farms and turn them into botnets, turn them into different resources that can be used for nefarious purposes. Well, that, that would be, you know, like assuming if they do five tries and then you just stop them for, for 30 seconds or something, how that would slow that down substantially, I'm sure. It's it, really, it really determines on the, the particular application that they're, they're trying to get into. A lot of times, once again, back to the 127 things on Max's phone, they're going to find one of those that's going to let you do innumerable enumeration against it. So they're going to be able to sit there and hammer it until either A, that service drops and dies, or B, it lets you in. And, and you know, again, it depends. You know, institutions such as credit card companies, they're getting smarter. Uh, the fraud detection is smarter. They're, 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 yes, they're, they're asking you, do you want to stay, you know, is this computer secure? And then you can, it'll send you a token that basically allows that computer to not be so prohibitive in accessing, or then you just need to put your password in after that. You had a question. No, I was going to say, were you here in the last two, three years where you sat down and broke a password in under two minutes? No, but I do know who that was, and that was part of the uh, the actual security club. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had that event here. Those, yeah. those guys are awesome. Yeah. And they actually went to Austin last year, Nationals, mm -hmm. and I think they were red team, and I think they took third. Not I, I forgot who the, uh, the professor is. Um, is that Kenrick? Kenrick no, it wasn't, it wasn't Kenrick Mark, but um, it was in, um, Kenrick talked about I, I computing. I had, I had a typing competition with him. Do you know who, <laughs> he's over the UC. Um, yeah. I just forgot his name too. Rex. Rex Plunkett. He no, it was wasn't here. Rex, it wasn't, well, Rex Plunkett was here, and he had his a, uh, associate who was the one when they hacked. They, they did it live. Yeah, they live correct, hacking. Uh, <laughs> the web keys, they call them. So, uh, um, wireless keys. But that was years ago. So that was already years yeah. ago. And also, um, Rex had also spoken here just about um, these. Uh, well, this is getting off topic. But just on, on television, you, or you just have these, what is it, um, for security. They say, you know, you can pay this money for some sort of business that will have security, and you find out that they could be in Argentina or someplace, you know, right, right. and um, just be very careful. Absolutely. Be very, no, very careful, you know, or you know, wherever to track it, and it's not. So some of the things I've heard, like for, you know, for home use, uh, people are uh, setting up different 
uh, wireless networks because most of the home networks you can set up multiple networks and you might want to put some things on a separate network from the network that you're using to put all your you know financial information through so uh, you might have your TV or your automation whether you have lights or uh, you know, some things might it might pay to have it on a separate network rather uh, that's just uh, some mitigation but I I have yet to do that myself so uh, I, so you think that's could have different networks potentially yeah I mean so, you think so that's especially a for the the internet of things you know like uh, that don't necessarily uh, get up to date uh, get updated very often by the vendor so certain amounts of segmentation uh, even around the university we have different devices and different levels of our infrastructure on different networks. Um, soda machines I was talking about, they don't touch our network. Those are on their own cellular network. We don't let those play, play uh -huh. on our own. Um, our servers and our infrastructure devices are all behind different devices and different pieces in our network. Um, even our desktops, when we're sitting in our desks, are on different segments of our network. At home, like Max is saying, a lot of, uh, a lot of the newer routers and whatnot allow you to create sub-networks or guest networks that don't talk to your home network. And what that does, it lets you provide internet to whatever you want, including an extra neighbor if you so decide, um, but not go back into your actual computers or anything on your, your private home network. Um, here at the university, we've, the, the wireless network we've got set up, um, it's much different than the one that they cracked two years ago. Uh, it's, it uses um, an enterprise-level encryption or an enterprise-level authentication that ties back to your university identity. So you actually log in with your username and password that you use for your email and all your other university services, and then only you have access to that. Um, very segmented out. So you wouldn't be able to have access to your computer and vice versa. You'd still have certain access to some university resources, but you wouldn't be able to see each other. Does that make sense? Hmm. Any other questions? Well, yeah, I know that probably any password can get hacked, but if you try not to, you know, put kitty or password or something, and you have, you know, capital A and an ampersand and then maybe a dash and, uh, you know, small L or something like mm -hmm. that, I, I think that would at least make it more difficult. You know, the more that's there, it's going to make it difficult. But Depends who's I hacking you. Can I XKCD this one? <laughs> so there is, an, there is a cartoon out there. It's called XKCD. And I highly recommend everybody reads this particular one. XKCD Password. It actually talks about what's called levels of entropy. Um, we have trained ourselves to create passwords that are hard for us to remember, but really easy for computers to guess. <laughs> Adding a one in there in place of an I, that doesn't do anything. Computers don't care. They're going to flip through that rainbow table anyways. Uh, the larger, the longer your password is, the harder it's going to be to guess. That's really the key is the length. Their perfect example in that was the password correct horse battery stable. Mm -hmm. You will never forget that now. From now on, that will be in your head. <laughs> what now? Correct, correct horse battery stable. That is, that is your password. Correct that would take any large computer or group of computers over 10 years to crack. You're kidding. No, it has 12, yeah. it was no 12 numbers, to no special characters. 12 to the 24th level of entropy. And so it's better not to have, but see, some of the companies require 
a symbol, a number. I you so, can throw those at the end. Yeah. So think about think about it this way. So you are basically setting up a blueprint for computers computers to guess that password by saying, all right, so you have to have a password that's between eight and twelve characters long. It must contain a capital and must contain a, a letter. Okay, well, let me set my rainbow table up. I know that this password's got to be between 8 and 12 characters long, and somewhere in here it's got to have a capital and a period. Or a capital and a character. So I think that you know a lot of organizations haven't caught up to this concept. This is relatively new, but, but all the recommendations going forward now are to have a passphrase, like Johnny mentioned. That's really Which interesting. I, can't my, I have to put my password manager because I, my short-term memory can't keep <laughs> keep up with that. But uh, something with a horse and a staple or something. Correct like that. horse battery staple. <laughs> I have it on the tape. <laughs> that one, low, he's out low. Battery staple. Right. So, I, I really read the cartoon. It explains. What, it is, what's it called? It's, it's called XKCD. And just Google XKCD password, and it will pop the right up. The XKD. XKCD. XKCD password. It sounds like the stupidest thing ever, but it is the best description of password policies and why you should use that type of password I've ever seen. And I've been doing this for a few years, and I actually have that printed off, and it is on my wall. And when somebody comes in and says, what should I change my password to? I just hand it to them. Wow. Perfect example of, of why we are actually doing computers a favor by setting these types of password restrictions. Wow, that's so. really fascinating. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any. Uh, so, uh, some of the other uh, emerging uh, threats that we're seeing is um, uh, a lot of the attacks are. Uh, there, it's estimated that a quarter of the uh, hacking attempts or attacks will be embedded in HTTPS into uh, secure uh, traffic, uh, and that presents a big challenge to almost every organization because that's supposed to be encrypted from your computer all the way to the server, say at Chase Bank or uh, Last USA or wh wherever you're, you're, you're utilizing that. Uh, from. There are um, some techniques where you can, uh, and, uh, we have the capability to do this, we're looking at it, we're not doing it yet, but where you can selectively choose to inspect uh, traffic. So we would say, okay, you're, you're actually connecting to the firewall, and then the firewall on behalf of you is connecting to wherever it is you're connecting. It's called, and it's actually, we're, it's actually hacking the secure connection to check to make sure there's nothing bad in it. And so there's some... Uh, some things that you have to you have to first of all people have to get used to the idea that well somebody could be looking at my HTTPS that isn't me we maybe can see what you're watching on Netflix yeah right what's this HTTPS uh, so uh, secure browsing you'll notice and when you're browsing you uh, have an S at the end it, of it has HTTP and an S and there'll be a little lock HTTPS. so that indicates you have a secure session from your computer to to the whether it's Amazon or your bank or university systems or where, wherever you're connecting to, um, a lot of the hacking exploits are going to start be, being uh, contained within those, tr those transport levels. So all of these fancy engines that look for threats and vulnerabilities won't be able to see it because it'll be hidden by the encrypted traffic. Does that make sense? I'm trying to put it into a, 
So at some point there may be a need. The name for the attack actually yeah. is a very good description of it. It's called a man in the middle attack. Oh. Uh, uh -huh. Basically, it puts somebody in between it, and they get to take a look at what's going across that wire without you really knowing. Um, so you think it's secure, but someone's watching. You got it, and, and technically it is secure. It's just you're securely giving your information up to somebody. Right. Essentially, going that big further. Yeah, in a way, and so yeah, so the, the, some of the we're in early discussions about how to how to handle this because as more and more traffic on the internet moves from you know open browsing uh, things that you can visibly see to secure channels it will be almost impossible to do any sort of threat protection or uh, vulnerability uh, assessment on on traffic coming in and out of institutions uh, so this is a fairly new area in the world of IT security we're gonna we're watching the industry and see how it goes um, the firewalls we have now are capable of doing it but they we would never do that without, uh, that would be something you'd have to sort of crawl into. So what, what kinds of things would we want to see? Well, we might want to see if, uh, if there are certain types of data that might be uh, leaving the university that shouldn't be, like social security numbers. So we may want to check uh, Gmail for social security numbers to make sure they're not leaving or make sure they're, you know, uh, credit card numbers in emails. Things like that, the data that we don't want to just kind of be able to go out there. There would be no other way to see it unless you had a mechanism to inspect it and look at it. Now, I'm just going to sit there and watch. I mean, there's no, there's no way. We, we generate millions and millions and millions of log files every day. The only time we ever actually go use those log files is if someone is having a problem or we're getting uh, requests from law enforcement or from human resources or some other incident that's happened where we need to go and look at, at logs because there's just not enough manpower or person power, I should say, to, to look after all of those uh, events. As a great data point, uh, I was just looking. We sent, sent just over 6 million emails in the last 30 days. And as a university system, we received over 30. Um, so... Yeah, we're not we're not looking at your email. Nobody's got that kind of. Yeah, no. Uh -huh. And of those, a good half of those are uh, uh, either industry, malicious or industry average is about forty percent spam. About five percent of those contain viruses and/or other malware or some sort of attack. Um, Something maybe industry related. I was talking with somebody from GCI. I think it was on St. Patrick's Day, and I guess are they getting out of email? Yeah, GCI is getting out of Alaska. Yeah, they, just got, they just got taken <laughs> they, over they by a venture capitalist. By what? By a venture capitalist group just bought GCI. Bought well, today. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah, they said that uh, they would still honor, you know, the, the GCI.net, but uh, you know, they it's been a headache dealing with them. They're actually moving away from uh, what's called on-prem email. Uh, so they're basically taking everything and moving it up to Microsoft's cloud. Uh, and they're going to start charging more for you to have that email. So they're going off of 365. So that's off-prem, so it's easy. Yeah, so you, you've got what's called on-prem and in the cloud, uh, which is just basically somebody else's computer. Uh, on-prem is you actually house the servers and the infrastructure yourself, um, or in GCI's case, you know, they, they house it in a data center. Um, or you have on the cloud, which basically 
all the infrastructure services go up to somebody else and all you're doing is utilizing their service or their software as a service. They're probably looking to cut back on some costs. So keeping keeping an email system, you know, they probably look at activity and decide, well, how many people are using GCI emails and do we really want to have this service running here in Alaska? And, uh, they might say, you know, a lot of services are moving you know, to the cloud, uh, which means basically for cloud services for, from Alaska's perspective usually means out of state. Usually the next closest hop is Washington. Well, isn't that... What, what is your view on the cloud? I mean, every... uh, Well, it creates a whole other way from a security perspective. It creates a whole other set of challenges because now instead of being able to try and secure our data here with certain you know, networks and permissions and user IDs and that sort of thing, now we've got it out here. And so general, logical, logically it's, it's the same, kind of, but now you're depending upon another, a third party to do some of the things that you were doing here in terms of securing and auditing and making yes. sure that and they also, have firewalls and they have But also protection. all the people on yeah. that cloud, right? I mean, you're talking, I mean, how many people are on a cloud? I like, love, I love <laughs> people. Is that, are they, a billion? Think of the cloud as, the cloud is basically a, a data center linked to another data center linked to another data center. And, you, and it's basically moving a computer from our data center to that data center. And you run your service out of a, a dedicated uh, data center that they're, that's what they're good at. They're good at, uh, you know, making sure their data center is always going to be up and always running and always connected and internet access and private access. And they, they, they spend a lot of money to do that. So you don't have to. You basically just need a, an internet link or a private link to the cloud service. And uh, that takes a lot off of the plate in terms of what you need to do for your own data center. I love, I love car analogies. I use them a lot. The cloud is, is like this. You're driving down the road, you're driving the car, it's your car. You take all the risks. You move it up to the cloud, all of a sudden you just hired a driver. Somebody else is driving you. You mitigated some of the risks. Then there's different services that you can continue to offload. Eventually, really, you're more in a bus than anything. You're highly protected, you've got all kinds of services that somebody else is providing you. But isn't the risk that the cloud then can be accessed by others? The cloud makes a much bigger target. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and that is a, actually a very large and very big common theme in the IT industry right now. It's a lot of people... Uh, security. Yep. S security... The, the security field is really blooming in the, with the cloud-based services. Because mm -hmm. as it becomes a bigger target, a lot of people are going, well, I want to move up there because it's cheaper. It, it, allows me to save a lot of money in not having to manage you know, these large computers at my office. But at the same time, what are the risks? And if I move all of my email from my private little server sitting in my basement up to Microsoft, do I become a bigger target? But also the price could change, right? Yes, it can. Yeah, and so you so might not you lose. And your features can change. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Or your emails could change. <laughs> Right, so so there's a, there's always a, a, a chance that your cloud service could actually go out of business if you're not watching how they're doing in the world and, and what happens to your data. So mm -hmm. so you you still have to manage your 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 business and your data mm -hmm. and your your security the same way, but it's out here, and so there that it takes a different way of thinking. So basically, training a whole one set of problems for a different. Set so of the idea of having something a storage something stored at another. 
network or right. or that's not it seems with all this information going to clouds that's not really feasible well here, here's a good right? example I mean um, so uh, we have an area uh, that has um, uh, health insurance data personal information HIPAA data uh -huh. okay and uh, they wanted to upgrade their server and uh, we said well we're not a HIPAA compliant data center because that requires a whole set of training and regulations and security cameras and, and access controls, a lot, lot more expense. It would have cost we, a million dollars to, yeah. to make it so we were HIPAA compliant. Right. Wow. Anyway. wow. Right, so that would add it. So instead, uh, the same uh, vendor, actually, they saw the benefit of this. They are also, you can install this on a computer here or you can use their service in the cloud. And their data center is HIPAA compliant. Well, that's good. They're good at doing that. So, we still have a responsibility to check and make sure they're HIPAA compliant, but we don't have to do it here. So you can outsource the service, but you can't outsource the responsibility. As a university, we're still responsible to make sure that that data is protected, but we need to go and make sure that the vendor is doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's a great question. You know, we have a lot of SaaS services now. So you have software as a service, infrastructure as a service, it's all these different things that are basically part of the cloud. Mm -hmm. Is there compliancy as a service? Uh, we, is that something we can buy? That's I think that's a, a good business model. You I and think I we, to we have, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> I do. So, so there are a couple of, uh, in the areas of credit card uh, uh, security for what they call PCI. Oh, yeah. We get industry. that a lot here. Yeah. yeah. The digital yeah. security standard for, for credit cards. Uh, all MasterCard, Visa, American Express, Discover, they all got together and they said, this is crazy. You guys need to get more secure. And here's how you're going to do it. And if you don't do it, we're going to levy fines. And if you don't go to the chip, then guess what? You're responsible, not us anymore. And so that's why they're moving to the chip as a standard. But what it's done is each year they add a little, anything that was a recommendation is now mandatory. And then they have new recommendations based on new threats. And so it evolves. And you slowly build up this, this security footprint that's more secure each year. And as you get more and more compliant, you have less and less uh, credit card fraud and that sort of thing. But online, there are, uh, I know of institutions that will, you know, you can go in and do all of your compliance work in the cloud. And so it'll, and you can watch and see, oh, we're red here, we're yellow here, we're, we need to work on this, we're all compliant down here, we're green, this is great. So it, for, for IT managers and business managers, it's a wonderful thing to have that sort of tool. So they do exist, compliance as a service does exist, I know thought of it too late. And, and what about just the, the whole um, global, the global network? So are there lines that are like American, like United States, and then you have these lines to say, okay, now this is going to be in this, I don't know if it's a global cloud or if this, how do, what, what are these lines? What is that called? Geolocation. Geolocation? So uh, every country is issued a set of, we'll call them phone numbers. Um, they're called IP addresses. Each country actually has a set of these addresses that can be that can basically be locators for where that traffic or where it's either coming from or destined to. Uh, a lot of data centers are geolocated, so they don't allow traffic from, say, China. It's a great example. Uh, Microsoft data centers, by default, do not allow internet traffic from China to enter their data center sees that IP address and says, nope, you've got to go to another data center. That doesn't mean they won't try from Belgium. Yep. Or yeah, it, it, it's, it's not a, 
which a is fault, a fault-proof thing. But there is there is definitely different invisible lines for different countries' internet access across the world. Yeah, and, um, and in countries where there, you know, we don't enjoy the freedoms we have, such as North Korea, I think they've got one IP address. <laughs> that's, that's the joke. But you know, it's all locked down. <laughs> yeah. Well, who decides who decides who gets the IP address? There's actually a. Uh, they might have more than that, but they're only. No, but it's a, a, an international sort of. Well, it is international now. It used to actually be run by the United States. It's it's Air, the company called Arin, um, A R I N. I cannot remember what that acronym stands for. This very moment, I used to know, but they they actually provision. It's on my test. I I know. <laughs> it's on my CCNA. I can't remember. Uh, they provisioned off every uh, every country got a certain amount of this address space. And they said, here you go, this is yours, that's all you get. Here you go, this is yours, that's all you get. And then they basically locate that out in the countries. Um, every, even, even us, uh, as an institution, we've got a block of those IP addresses. Anything that comes from that is identified back to the University of Alaska. Uh, part of Max's lovely job is to track down copyright infringements. Um, oh. The event that somebody goes out there and they illegally download something, a lot of times they will get sued by one of those lovely record companies or something along those lines. That number identifies where that traffic came from. They will actually send us a notice. It goes through a lovely process. It's not fun. Um, this is a crazy question. How many are there? Oh, man. Uh, how many infringements are there? No, IP addresses. I mean, that's... Ooh, that's a good... Uh, I'm just trying to grasp what the <laughs> hundreds. <laughs> it, it, it's so here we go again. One, three, six. And that's IPv4. So. Yeah, I mean, there's. It's going to be 3 to the 24th power. That's where I re so rely on the all billions Google is the to uh, look up that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, can you sell an IP address? Yep. And right now, they're actually starting to become worth some money because we're running out of them. Wow, this is this is this is a whole way of thinking about this. Well, when you talk about IPS, it's like you know www.fear.com. Is that different than IPS? Great, great website. Uh, yeah. No, that is that resolves to an IP URL? address. Pardon? That that resolves to an IP address. So every website that you go to out there, it has an underlying basically an underlying phone number. Um, that there is a protocol used that goes to one service, that service says, oh, yep, beer.com, its IP address is 137.229.187.21. That's actually my IP address for my laptop, but it's a good one to use. Uh, then your browser says, oh, Mark, here we go. It's on the recording. <laughs> it's, it's great, because it's not mine. It's yours. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> no, it's not mine. So it actually, that's how the websites are identified. Uh, that underlying service is called DNS, or domain domain name system. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it's a, basically a big lookup that lets you get Giant to beer. Dot, so you can just type a name, and it'll automatically look up the number for you, and you don't have to think about it. What I find a bit frustrating with okay, this Google is, is that I will pipe in a site and something something dot org or something, and uh, it is clearly identifiable. There's ICANN. It doesn't show up until lower down on the second page 
and there's all kinds of other things that have Google advertising on them. They are not responding to the request. Yeah, that's right. It's ads. It says ads. It's an algorithm-based system. So it's going to try and get you to click on what it wants you to click on so that they can make money. That's and, the easiest and way people to pay to, to have links go up higher in the higher in the list yep. for prioritization. So people actually that's how they make their money. See, I, I, well, my favorite example of that was if you go to Google and you just type into the search bar Microsoft, the very first link you get is Google. <laughs> I don't blame them. That's what I would do too. You go to Bing and do the same thing. The very first link you get is well, it's Bing. So who knows what you're going to get? But <laughs> so what do you think about like this IX Quick DuckDuckGo? Don't they all still have to tie back into Google? No. What is that? Uh, those are alternative search engines oh, okay. that are utilized for a little bit more privacy. Uh -huh. um, they guarantee things like uh, encrypted searches that don't track back to your IP address, which we were talking about a little bit ago. Uh, no, they utilize their own, their own search algorithms, and they keep their own databases in those sites. Um, the technology behind that is called internet crawling. Basically, uh, okay. they have server farms that do the exact same thing as Google. It's all about the math. Uh, and we actually have, we want Google to crawl our servers because when we go to look for something, a resource, we want people to be able to find it. And so uh -huh. uh, oftentimes when they make changes to the websites here at UAA, sometimes people will call up and say, oh, you can't find it. Well, we got to wait for the next crawl to happen. And we have to allow them to crawl. So it, we could actually say, don't and crawl us. But do you pay money for that? No. No. Oh. We, as a university, we don't. Oh. But you can tell them to crawl. Oh. They, they want to. Uh-huh. It's just more accurate. Is there an, I'm only aware of the, the two alternative search engines. Are there a couple others? Oh. There are a lot of them out there. Um, DuckDuckGo is probably the most popular. Uh, but in, I mean in terms of privacy or in terms of just general general search engine. Both. Both. There's, yeah, I mean, there's thousands yeah. of search engines. Um, it, it, I know they used to have Ask Jeeves, and I think they <laughs> <laughs> Have they survived at all? Oh, no. I, I remember uh, that. Ask Jeeves got bought out by Yahoo, and Yahoo got bought out by Verizon. Right, they uh, now they turned into Oath. Um, yeah. yeah. No, a lot of those have all either gone away, folded up, so, do, do, I'm, I'm just going back to this idea of this, this global world, you know. So, do governments have different rules depending on, let's say, United States has certain rules, Canada already. So, is it, are, these, are there these kind of like lines about what you can and can't do depending on, you know, what country you're in? Uh, yeah, the only... Or is it? Or is it something like the cut is over? It's over. Like there's an agreement that so kind of there, over. There are definitely goes over. when doing conducting business across uh -huh. in the global community, you have to be aware of uh, local laws. Um, this I know this issue came up in France where they don't allow certain types of uh, traffic to be encrypted. So uh, that's by law because they want it. It's, it's that's their law. So. Um, we're at, uh, with, with our relationship with Cuba, uh, we were not allowed to um, have any connections or any business related to Cuba. So if there's... Uh, we are now. Now we are, but I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, limited, right? So, so if you tried, you would be blocked or you'd get 
fine, like you'd get in trouble? Uh, it sort of, you know, oh. it depends on the scenario. Okay. So, so okay. It, 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 if it was accidental, I mean, it, it really would, it, it, it's hard to say. The, the U.S. right now is currently a very internet-open country. Uh, we don't have a lot of rules for incoming or outgoing traffic outside of our borders. But when you start looking into some of the communist countries or some of the more conservative lockdown places, China is a great example. You'll hear the term "Great Firewall of China." Um, they're not allowed to. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed to Google their own government. They're not allowed to do searches on yeah. really anything. And sometimes they'll even shut down social media. Turkey. Was it Turkey, Egypt? No, it was Turkey. A couple years ago, Turkey, when they had the, Turkey, the, uh, yeah. the Arab summer, or Arab spring. spring. Um, yeah, I couldn't remember which, which one it was. But they completely cut off all access to Twitter um, because they were actually, people were using Twitter to share uh, you know, pictures of the atrocities that were happening. Turkey's like, oh, uh uh, watch this. One button, and they took their entire uh, country's internet down. Syria does it all the time. Um, Syria on a bi usually bi-weekly basis. Um, Assad doesn't like what's being published, so he goes and he literally hits the button. So could that happen here to the government? Or do we have, is it our relationship to the uh, I think go, um, business is different? Or? You probably have another crowd of protesters. Also, what do you think of internet neutrality? Oh, that's a, that's a heated topic. Uh-huh. Um, well, you're in this. So for, for me, I, I think that there's different schools of thought around the internet. My generation grew up with the internet as a right, uh, or excuse me, not as a, the internet is, is a right. It is Accessible. not a privilege. Yeah. Uh -huh. It is much like breathing. Um, it is our access to yeah, the it's world. utility. It's like water. It's ubiquitous. It's, it should be included, and everyone should have the same access yeah. to the internet. Net neutrality really neuters that ability. Uh, the way that... The way that it's currently going, um, you're gonna, we're going to allow for things like what's happening in China um, to happen here, just in a very corporate environment. Yeah, versus if you wanted a to pay, let's say, let's say a company wanted to pay so that their web server would go faster than the competition. Well, they would, in, in, the, in, in that environment, without net neutrality, they would be able to do that. Say that GCI, the new GCI company, wants everybody to have to pay to go to the municipality's website to file their property taxes, uh -huh. they will be able to do that. They will be able to put taxes and put toll gates to get to different resources. And that's what net neutrality is all about. It, it does allow for a corporate takeover of the internet. I thought net neutrality was the opposite. That's what I thought, too. That, that's the whole battle of what you hear about net neutrality. And there's, so, a, there's not even a the term means both things. That's weird, isn't it? Yep. Depends on how you look at it, yes. And that's where they're getting a lot of people. So when you start start looking in the start looking into the politics and you start reading the news about it, you gotta see which side's using the term. And you gotta really pay attention to it. Uh, not to get too far into politics, but the Republicans have taken that net neutrality <sighs> and they've turned it into a we're going to allow businesses to do whatever they want to the internet. So that's net neutrality. Eh. On the exact opposite, net neutrality means no, 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 no. We're not going to let anybody screw with it. It's open. Oh, access. Yeah, it's yep. free access. Yep. Yeah. 
So I mean, basically, you build a you, you build a, a, a pipe to the internet, and whoever builds a bigger, faster pipe to the internet, it's great. But what happens within that pipe should not be rated or regulated or tariffed, and that's 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 my belief. I, I think it, you know, it should remain neutral. So it seems to we have this thing of traffic that goes through the government, the, the government in control versus this business in control, where the people are going to have to pay one way or the other. I mean, under a control mechanism. Because is there an alternative? Well, it's, it's a, for for me, I, I really like the idea of uh, classifying as a Title II utility. Uh, this is something that, that President Obama tried to do under his administration. Is he came out and he said that no access to the internet is a utility. What that basically does is that guarantees a certain level of access to it. It's just like your gas, your water, your electricity. You are guaranteed to be able to get those utilities without a company coming in and saying, oh, you know what, you want clean filtered water? Well, you're going to have to pay me an extra 50 bucks a uh -huh. month for me to put this filter in. We don't, we don't play that game with water. Internet's the same thing. Fortunately, that did go into play, and it, they, they did treat it like that for quite some time. A lot of the rollbacks that we're, we're seeing now are really stripping a lot of those protections away. So what companies will be able to do is they'll say, oh, you, uh, you want access to uh, that there adult site? Oh, well, that's our you know, adult package. You're going to have to pay an extra $20 a month mm -hmm. for it. Or, oh, you want access to the sports site? Oh, you're going to have to pay an extra $15 a month for it. Where it's really big is uh, things like Netflix and Hulu. Uh, Netflix is the number one utilizer of internet traffic. It's the most traffic on the internet is Netflix. It's, people don't, don't think about that. But every time you're watching a movie, you are, along with millions of other people, you are taking a lot of traffic out of that internet backbone. Netflix has to pay for that both ways. So what that means is basically Netflix is getting charged by the providers to be able to give you that, and then they're being charged by uh, your ISP or whatever to be able to provide that to you. What's going to happen with net neutrality is the ISPs are going to be able to say, you know what, hold on, you can have Netflix, or you can use my streaming service with better quality for the same price and they'll be able to actually make Netflix's quality and go Netflix's down. ability go down. Or Amazon or iTunes. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. As long as once they do that, they don't up their prices. And well, <laughs> you, you get used to a better vision. You know. Well, back to the car analogy, they can basically put in a carpool lane for their own traffic and make everybody else be stuck in the traffic next to it. Wow. So... I spent 10 years in the Seattle area. Uh -huh. That's a really good analogy for that, <laughs> let me tell you. Oh. So do you think that public people should be more involved with policy? Or how do you, I mean, how do, what, uh, you know? always tell the, the, the two of us, we, we, we get along really well, because he wears the suit coats, <laughs> I wear the video game hoodies and unicorn socks. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know the role in this. Yes. Know? I think that that is a huge part. That's a huge problem in politics and in, in our current society in general. I mean, even in the local, uh, the local government, even in our local university, none of us are involved. Uh, I, I, I personally try to stay involved in some of the national politics that go along with net neutrality and go along with uh, with some of the changes that are being made to the FCC. 
it's how do you get involved? Well, you have to be aware of it, that there is change going on. But even being aware of it, what's your next step? Yeah. How do you become politically active in it? You write your congresswoman, you write your, your congressman, you, you, you try to you know, get involved at that level, but there really isn't any involvement that you can have. Uh, especially here in Alaska, that's a, a very huge very huge problem for us. Um, I have a personal belief that I will share that we need to stop trying to be involved in national politics and start getting involved in our own local politics. Um, we need to start supporting places like our university, standing up and saying, don't cut our funding, start at that grassroots, and then let the university and let our students and the next generation really step up and help fight that battle. Because our generation, we've already kind of lost it. Well, as sad and cynical as that sounds, um, we're, we're on the downhill slide for internet privacy, and we're on the downhill slide for net neutrality. Uh, the way things are today, now things change, but it's the deal. Yeah. But, but we've got to build up that foundation, I guess, is where I was going with But that. You, don't, you don't see it in a global, in terms of what's happening, let's say, in France or in other, I don't know, France, but Canada, I don't know, other places that the uh, trend could be put pressure here? to be more open, or you see the whole thing going <laughs> the other direction? Country, since each country's got so much control over their own internet, I, I don't see it changing anywhere else. I, the, the UK has changed a lot of their internet policies. Um, there's, there's different countries are different have different levels of openness, and each country controls their own level of openness. So if I, if I was on Google, I, say Google, could I find this information out fairly easily? Or is it something I'd have to search for, like dig for? You mean about net neutrality or about just like the government, government, just like, like like the global picture of net neutrality, you know, internet. Wikipedia. Oh, Wikipedia. Uh huh. Yeah, just look and it'll tell you. Yep. Just get a better idea. Uh, of Wikipedia is actually some fantastic articles talking about uh, net neutrality and the yeah. control over the internet throughout. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, because um, we used to see protests mostly younger people and my um, compared to others that um, saying this was passionate this was the issue almost about net the good net neutrality yeah, it's going to come mean, again it's going to and that do not take that do not take that well and I will say we, we won that battle I thought you did yeah uh, you know in 2010 um, I was in downtown Seattle with tens of thousands of people marching through the streets to battle exactly that. And the uh -huh. next day, that's when President Obama came out and, and said, you know, we are going to classify this as a Title II utility. Honestly, a lot of us thought it was going to go the other way. We really did think that the FCC was going to come back and say, sell your information, do whatever you want with it. What's the difference between Title II and Title I? I don't remember. Um, I thought Title I was uh, Water. Uh, you know, infrastructure services. So, like, Utility companies, uh, basically the utility companies' services, not the services provided to you. Not 100% positive on that. Um, so you, so that was 2010, right? Yep. So seven years later, you see it's, it's what, the pendulum split. Well, you see, seven years later, there was no discussion on it. Okay. Um, seven years later, we weren't given the option or the ability to stand up. Uh, it had it come out and said that hey, we're going to have this on the top, as a topic of discussion tomorrow there would have been a lot of very interesting protests and very interesting people out on the streets. But nobody knew about it. A lot of the rulings that just came down were, were kind of done in backroom deals 
and then all of a sudden it just came out. So you don't see like in the next 2018 changing? Because that, that's what people keep referring to about. We're going to be voting in 2018, you know? So, uh, but is it... It's a lot of issues. It's not one issue, but it's a lot of things right now. You're right. It's so become highly politicized. I think that we have to have a problem before we can have a solution. The, the, latest, uh, the, the latest FCC ruling on uh, ISPs being able to sell your privacy this is huge. Oh, I know. Yeah, I can't people, believe that. People yeah. don't seem to understand like, how much data ISPs can actually collect on you that they can then now go out and sell to anybody they want. I think once that actually hits and somebody starts to find out some of this information or we get well, one hack and that information is leaked, you will see protests in the streets again and you will see people saying, I told you so. What's interesting is they, they've had the ability to do, to do that, but they, the ruling was to start this year to restrict, to put the limitations on what they can do with it. Now they no longer have to do that. So, um, you know, the argument is that well, you know, Google's already collecting all this information on you, so why can't the ISPs do it? Uh, I think that uh, for me, I favor you know privacy of the individual as much as possible. I think that's important. Um, I think that whatever it is that we do with that needs to be figured out. There needs to be you know um, a certain amount of regulation around that to protect the individual. That's, that's my own personal opinion. Um, whether or not what they repealed now, that was, that was a step in that direction to try to get some uh, controls around individual personal uh, you know, behaviors uh, on the internet, whether it's your browsing, uh, what you're buying, where you're visiting, what you're looking up. Um, now, that, now that's all into question. And right as it stands now, the, the companies will not have to do anything special to protect, to protect your information, you know, in, in the sense that they can sell that information to advertisers or to marketing firms or to, uh, you know, which, I, which but, I'm against. Okay, now, <laughs> I, might, I, I might be missing this, but so who, who has the IP address, right? The ISP. So, so your GCI has got your IP address. That's, the Google, the Google thing is one of those, it's, it's a really great point to this, this discussion and this argument. Google sells your information. You get, every time you go to Google and you type in something, you are agreeing to their terms of use for them to sell your information. You don't give them any money. They're not providing, you're not purchasing a service from them. In the IT world, what we call that is, if you're not giving somebody money for something, then you are the product. That, that's why when you, when you, uh, even, when you, you sell look yourself, at something you're on Amazon and then you go Google something, that same thing you looked at shows up, up on, Amazon. on Google. You know, minutes, seconds later, there's, there's, because they've got an agreement between Amazon and Google to share your browsing and search data on Amazon into your search engine to say, now with, hey, with our ISPs, this product. with our ISPs holding those keys, the large issue there is they hold all the keys, so they're able to see anything that's going across that wire. So even if I'm not going to Google, they're going to be able to pick up that information that I'm going to Yahoo and sell it to Google. Now, if it's on IX Quick or something, aren't they seeing that? Yep. So it's just... It's so, earlier in our conversation, uh, Max was talking about these man-in-the-middle attacks. Um, we are talking a little bit about how a lot of the, the traffic that's going across the wire is HTTPS or encrypted. 
the ISPs are, have been, and they do, deploy a lot of that same technology. So right now, GCI, uh, I keep using GCI as a great example because there are you know, local ISP, well, we're our local ISP. Uh, they have servers put in the middle, so they're actually snagging everything that you go to. They know every website that you've been to, every uh, any internet traffic that you have used. Uh, that Skype call where you called your mom last week, they've got that. They know that you did that. But up until now, they weren't allowed to do anything with it. It could just sit there, and it had to sit there in encrypted storage where nobody could access it, and they couldn't. They were not allowed to benefit uh, monetarily off it at all. With the latest rulings that were overturned, they can now take that data, farm it, and sell it to whoever they want. I'm just curious, technically, technologically, it seems like there's just there's a massive amount of data. At some point, is it going to be too overwhelming for them even to sort through? There's so much there. There's so much money in it that it won't well, be. <laughs> I love this analogy. So The car? <laughs> no, we'll, I won't go back to the car one, but I do love analogies. You can't tell. Uh, anybody remember a floppy disk? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember how much data it contained? Remember? I'm trying to think. There were three, size, size. three sizes, I think. So yeah. let's go with a three and a half inch floppy. <laughs> 1.4 megabytes. 1.4 megabytes of data on that disk. So those stopped being popular 15 years ago now. They were replaced by micro SD cards that you can see that are the size of your pinky nail that they now just released in a one terabyte fashion. Data is ever expanding and it's ever growing. No, they won't get tired of sorting through it. And no, it won't stop, they won't stop gathering storage is no longer a problem for anybody. Um, the NSA did a great job of proving that uh, the last few years um, when they, they had their spying programs going. Uh, the estimates is they were collecting just over two petabytes of data an hour. So along the same lines of collecting data, I tried to figure out uh, when I purchased a book from Amazon like in 1993. I'm convinced Bezos, maybe at Princeton, and it was on a floppy disk. A book on architecture in 1993. Every month, I get an email. <laughs> Here's the latest work on architecture, <laughs> urbanism, new design. Sure. That, that little floppy of his that he probably moved into whatever bill as he worked, kept that information. <laughs> Absolutely. Because at some point, you might want to go back to that. Well, you know, it was an interesting book, you know, a new, new book on urbanism. I thought, okay, you know, but I didn't buy it. I just decided I don't want to afford it. But that is definitely the world that, I mean, think about that. Think about no, I, I'm more diverse that's going to become. I, I, am, I admire and I also uh, somewhat loathe the fact that Facebook knows exactly what to sell me. Like, I am a sucker for those really cool <laughs> gadgets, like you know, like the wallet that holds your credit cards, like this, and then slides it in, nice and neat. You know, it's like Facebook. You know, I had a friend who's sort of smart, not so smart, and he said the same thing. He said, "I must have an amazing computer or something." They keep sending me these ads, and I look at it, and he buys the stuff. I just say, "How liberating!" Well. 
Wasn't it Apple? No, no long before Apple. Oh. I would actually think it, yeah. It's a data set. That's what it is. And what I thought though GeoCities. Pardon? GeoCities. What I, what I thought when I first heard about it is that it must have made Microsoft stock ten times more valuable, but nothing happened in the stock market all Because it seemed to me every every country I traveled to on the computer, I'm confident it was all And I think when you went to the cloud, instead of having selling one software and having ten people look like it, and then you try to track you, Microsoft try to track down one person. When I first heard about the cloud, it seems to me that what Microsoft does, and this is a different analogy than yours, but it, it leases you a key and you have to come to them. You can't move Microsoft. Microsoft realized um, just over the you know last few years of their existence that they were no longer making money on software. Um, you, you can see the the end of the Balmer era. Uh, Microsoft stopped being a software company and turned into a services company. Um, so now that's your statement's even more true than ever. They do lease you a key. Uh, yeah, at a certain Windows point, 7, at a certain point, they they didn't care if people have it because they just wanted it out there. And, and certain, and there was a certain amount of customers that were paying, and that was good. They were making tons of money, but once that sort of reached a certain point, and they realized, yeah, like wait a minute, um, this model isn't going to actually work. We need to figure out a way. And, and the transition from software to services is, is it was really ingenious. Way to, yeah, um, you know, they they basically with Windows Seven. Even if you pirated Windows Seven there for about eighteen months, they said we don't care. Upgrade to Windows Ten for free. And you can have a free, legit legal copy. It's great. The minute you sign into Windows 10 for that first time, it starts bugging you. Hey, hey, get this Office 365 subscription. Uh -huh. Hey, check out these Microsoft services. It's all built into their, their licensing agreement that you signed. And now, instead of having a customer that paid $80 for you know, an operating system once every five years, they've got a customer that's going to pay $9.99 every month. You want to plug uh, Office 365 for... I just did it once. I can do it again. We do. We are. We are a very big Microsoft shop here. In um, we run lots of Microsoft services, lots of Microsoft servers, uh, infrastructure-based services. And if you are a student, staff, or faculty, you get the entire Office 365 suite of products for free. Please don't buy it. Yes. Yeah, really too. tried to push people away from that. One point uh, about a year and a half ago, I went downstairs to the bookstore and I took all of their copies of. Office and say, no, don't sell Stop. these. <laughs> and they stop selling. And we don't. Yep. No, we don't. Yeah, I, I got Windows 7 Pro and everything's on a hard drive. And they're, they're phasing that out. Yeah, you can't buy Windows 7. Yeah. But they're not even going to support it, I guess. You've got to extend it support in this next, I uh, think, 18. <laughs> I haven't touched Windows 7 in a while. So, I, I just, so what part of your job do you enjoy the most? when can make a difference and improve the services that we're providing. 
without anybody noticing that. No. Oh, somebody's got well, a little credit. So, before we put in the, the application firewalls that we have in today, we were getting compromised devices. Uh, just, um, it was almost daily. I mean, so printers and PCs and, you know, uh, anything that was hooked up to the Internet was just getting attacked and compromised, and then it, it starts spewing out botnet traffic, and, and we are just kind of running around like fire drill. And so when we put those in, and, I mean, there's less... You know, we have a limited staff, and so the more we can automate, the more things that we can put in that work in a way that makes the university experience better for everybody, then I can focus on other things rather than, you know, spending eight hours chasing down one device. I should be spending eight hours figuring out better and faster ways to provide services along with the rest of the team in a secure way so that we're not losing data, we're not losing passwords, we're not... So for me, I think it's about taking some. What I love is, is when you can take something and improve it. Because mm -hmm. I'm not going to be here forever. No one is in any job forever. But I want to make it better than when I got here. Mm -hmm. And hopefully significant. Mm -hmm. Maybe another semi-related question. Just your experience with like blog platforms, blogger versus uh, WordPress. Do you have any experience or any insights from others? No, I stay away from all of them. Blogger is a Google product, though. Mm -hmm. Do you know that? Yeah, I, I don't get involved with that too much. If you're going to do your own thing, though, make sure you set it to, most of them have some kind of automated updates. Make sure you get those set up, because people will attack your WordPress or blog site, and they'll make it their own. Uh, if you're going to set up a WordPress blog, use the cloud. One of the, um, <laughs> do, do you ever have, um, you have like, um, yeah. police contact you, or... I don't know, the FBI or even, I don't know, CIA to, for information? Like, do people contact you for things? Uh, we've gotten subpoenas, yeah. And do, uh, do you ever feel mm, it's questionable, like, in terms of what they're asking? Or, um, I don't know, you know. No, I mean, we have to respond to it, and usually we, it's through the uh, Office of General Counsel. Oh, so, uh-huh. Yeah, Could so... You, uh -huh. so um, I, I kind of giving you the generic response, but um, uh, yeah, it's our duty to respond to any okay. sort of you know law enforcement, whether it's local or uh, federal. Well, we're the stewards of the data. Um, we aren't necessarily the be-all, end-all for where it goes. Uh, if we're asked, and we're asked pretty often, you know, can you go get everything associated to this? And we'll narrow it down to you know the search terms that a lawyer provides us, and then we'll get in that data. Um, one that I can I can talk about is Pebble Mine. Uh -huh. um, we were subpoenaed a lot with the with the Pebble Mine um, lawsuit that came up at BPA. Uh, we spent a good part of uh, two weeks um, between our desktop technicians and then myself and another one of my team members gathering all of the data that was related to that particular research project. And then we had to provide that. It's a total of about three terabytes of uh, different research models, emails, the whole nine yards, to our general counsel, who then provided it to because Because what was the question? Like, what was the problem? So the Pebble Mine had a very public and very large lawsuit against uh, the University of Alaska Anchorage in the state of Alaska. Um, 
Because faculty were doing research? Or the, the basis of the lawsuit was that uh, we had predetermined an outcome, of a an outcome of a research project before the actual work was done that then harmed their business case for opening the company. And what happened with that? I was thrown out. That's why you can actually talk about it now. I was thrown out uh, about eight months ago. And so were you ever, did the people representing Pebble ever pay money for all the work you did? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh, they lost the lawsuit. They, no, no it doesn't happen. <laughs> no, it, it, I wish. Now, I heard, I heard that there was a professor who also, um, well, this could be something else, in anthropology who got, who was reprimanded for his work with Alaska Natives. And so that's, I don't know, yeah. you start Every looking at people, I, I research or part, try uh, Well, I don't, there's certain things I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy suicide. researching uh, things that may, um, I don't know how to characterize it, but Illegal activity, certain illegal activity, is not enjoyable for me yeah. to track down. Yeah. But um, what I do enjoy about the job is the, the every day is different. Uh huh. So, oh, that's so there's good. always a new challenge. So uh -huh. there's always a thought, thought, wow, that that happened, and I hadn't seen that before. Uh huh. Or um, you know, it's a it's a completely evolving uh, job. Uh huh. And we are an open university, so we have a lot of people that come in here and utilize our services uh, with the consortium library with yeah. our our Wi-Fi um, during the winter time it gets pretty cold out there and we get a lot of questionable characters coming in and hanging out in the spine and believe it or not some of them have laptops uh, and some of them don't exactly look at things that are appropriate uh, oftentimes we have to go find out you know if we can find any information on so-and-so such-and-such IP address visiting a bad website things along those and you have the authority to say we move the person from the person I mean, I don't know Most you, but the, the police. Most of the time, don't know about it until long after. It's usually at, well after uh, the fact. Uh -huh. Well, how do you even, because like you said, you have like 60 million emails or something like that. Email-wise. How do you keep track of, like, what, I mean, how do you even begin to. Uh, we have a lot of, a lot of tools, uh, both in the Google and the Microsoft world, that allow you to narrow it down to a, a Boolean search term. So I can go in there and, uh, back to the Pebble Mine example, I can say, okay, I need to look up mine, results, pebble, anything that has to do with these. And it'll just give me that data set. I can start going down from there. It's, it's true on the network. So there's certain, uh, uh, say with the copyright infringement, well, we, we stopped getting a lot of those because uh, student housing, actually, the internet provider, we were providing internet access for student housing. That's now provided by GCI. So the copyright infringement is now their problem. Um, <laughs> so so what, what, what these companies will do when the new Game of Thrones comes out uh, is that they, they have software that sits on, um, uh, there's a program called BitTorrent that many might have heard of to basically go and uh, download um, copyrighted materials and part of using BitTorrent is that you're also providing that to other people and the more you provide to other people the faster you can download. Um, in certain areas of our network, we don't allow BitTorrent, so on our wireless network, and we, we turn that off not to say that you shouldn't use BitTorrent, but it's because it was just clogging up the resources. Everybody would, you know, one person could start using BitTorrent, all of a sudden the Wi-Fi just dies. So we, we work with all the university representatives to say, yes, we'd like to turn the service off in the, 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 the uh, student um, president, or who's our representative for the 
Like, we had the, stu the students were represented in this group, so we, we, we talked about, you know, this is what we're going to do, and this is what the impact is. And it seems to have worked out, but there's still areas of, of the network where you can get around certain things. I'm working on closing them down, but, but um, we have tools that can find the computer based on uh, its uh, unique signature or hardware address called the MAC address. Um, and that, every, it's like a series of numbers and letters that's usually printed on the computer itself. Um, and if we can't find that person, if they're not online, we can, we can have that MAC address uh, not be allowed to use, be used on the network the next time. So they'll actually have to call up the call center and say, hey, I can't get on the network. And they're like, oh, hello, but we've been wanting to talk to you. <laughs> By the way, uh, did you know you downloaded this and we need to give you this copyright notice? Now, university, we, we do not give up the names of uh, uh, students to, uh, to the uh, companies that are seeking these um, infringement, uh, but for faculty and staff, we have to. Oh. Yeah, and so it's, we're required to, like, yeah, and they're getting more aggressive about it because uh, the... The, the studios, you know, Universal and all the major uh, HBO, um, the only way they see that they can make some money, they, they can't really get you at home unless you're like a big uh, content sharer. It's just too much work for them. But, but the universities, they see that as an avenue uh, where they can find out who the person is more readily. And they also, I think they also do it because it's, you know, uh, generation that's starting down the internet track, and it's sort of an awareness. Like, okay, well, we're going to put pressure on this group of people. Don't do this. It's illegal. It's bad for business. Bad for you know, the people who work on this uh, product. Hmm. Hmm. Keep it on show wow, this is a kind <laughs> what of what you do at home is your own business, yeah. Johnny. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got Windows Seven at some point that's going to become a dinosaur. Should I go Windows 10 or 365? I'd have to be paying for it myself. Two different things. Uh, one's an operating system, one's a, an office suite of services. So you got to go Windows 10 uh, or Mac. The year of Linux. I was not going to say <laughs> the year of Linux. No, it's happening. It's what we've said for the last 17 no, years. It's coming. <laughs> <It's laughs> <coming. laughs> the Penguin is not taking over. Uh, no, Cali Linux is pretty user friendly. Don't, don't tell people to use Kali Linux. I know, I know, I know. You remember, you are the security guy. Here, everybody, go use this tool set that's meant to circumvent his entire job. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope somebody uses Kali Linux now and tomorrow is hell for you. Um, <laughs> this is what I deal with every day. But yeah, Office 10, or yep. excuse me, uh, Windows 10, and then Office 365 for productivity so you on top of that. And always do your updates, do your patching. I've noticed on mine, you know, it's got that security down at the bottom, and I guess it's set to come on at 1. Some people say turn your computer off, but I seem to work till 12, start up again at 6 a.m. Right. Uh, I've noticed, what, what's also interesting, if I have anything hooked up to it, uh, or even a CD or anything, I guess it goes in, and uh, does a security check for anything else. At a certain point, um, Windows will be running in the background, and after a certain number of days, if you've got it configured the way I think you do, it's going to do the update anyway, and it's going to reboot it. It's going to power itself on, it's going to do the update, and then reboot itself, and it'll get the little warning, you've got updates, you right. know, yeah. 
and that's a good thing. The other thing that I, I try to do is uh, I try to use that C cleaner at the outset of a session. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, what's your take on that? I have a C cleaner? Yeah, I had that. Bryce yeah. can't do that. Oh, I just wanted to show off that Linux can't do facial recognition. No. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was all. C cleaner? Uh, yeah, I, just, I, I, I don't use malware bytes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't use it all the time. Don't need it. Just CPU resources. Uh, and uh, I guess the other thing that if uh, we're looking at a different product probably in the next year, but who knows? But the university uses semantic uh, antivirus endpoint protection. Um, staff and faculty and students were licensed for home usage on that. So if you have an account, uh, you can log into the site and you can download it. And oh. It doesn't cost you. Well, it doesn't cost you any money. Right. It's still going to catch a good percentage of it, and it's it's not it's, you know, there's many opinions about some of it. Not my favorite, but if you don't come out of come out of this with anything else, just don't be stupid on the internet, and you won't have to worry about a whole lot. That's just going to say that. Is there any internet security club? There is actually a cybersecurity club. There's a cybersecurity club, but they're more red team, blue team. Are you in that? Uh, not here. I was at UAF. Yeah, the, uh, there is there is a, a club, but it's more uh, it's more certified ethical hacker style, so it's not a lot of education, uh, the general population style. Um, if you're looking for more of the general education, they do actually have classes uh, and workshops over at the university center. Where they do teach some some basic, uh, you know, how to protect yourself from this. And it's also whatnot. some some really great uh, resources online. Sans.org is a great uh, website. Just to S A N D S S A N S S A N S dot org. Have you guys ever consulted with any like white hats trying to improve your systems? No, that's a fantastic idea, and I really think that we should engage our cybersecurity team here to do that. Because let me tell you, I'm all for crowdsourcing. And uh, like Max was saying, we are a very limited shop uh, in regards to resources. And, oh, I know those guys, if you uh, set them loose and say, hey, so uh, do us a favor and find some broken stuff, yeah, well, we'd be in trouble. And so uh, <laughs> we're in good shape uh, with things coming from the outside. Uh, internally, that's somewhere where we're working to, right. to improve our, uh, our systems. So we want to get more visibility on what's going on um, than, you know, Networks primarily around our data center, but yeah, and this we're, we're always looking for we're always looking for help. He's done a fantastic job over the last two years of really grabbing a lot of that stuff that is just decades old, um, just cruft that needed to be picked up and dealt with, and ran with it. Um, but with limited resources that UAA has, uh, we still do have some some definite things that we're working on both internal in regards to technology and process that uh, we'll, well it's, I mean we've got a lot on the a lot on the horizon a lot of good news it might but have our, to be the printers in, oh. are no longer on public IP address space so thank you Max we um, um, might think of this more under um, maybe justice you know in or the council so maybe IT is going to morph into something in more in the legal realm so right now you, um, you know I just, right now, maybe IT, the whole discipline here, will be something under more of a legal, like, 
a legal concept, you know, what's legal, legal compliance, right, you know, security, but under a, a concept of, of justice or, I don't know. There might be more money there than in just yeah, IT. Do you see? I mean, just the way you think so, of it, the words yeah. you use. I think I know what you're trying to get at. So, yeah, in, in, in many institutions, IT is kind of shoved. Like, so I've seen IT be shoved, like, within regular uh, administration. I've seen it shoved under uh, different organizations. So it's sort of like this afterthought. Well, where do we put it? we got to put it in, in our house uh -huh. somewhere. Um, Ideally, it should be you know somebody who's reporting up to someone at a very high level yeah. who has the ability to uh, make. Uh, I think we have decent, if not really good, representation. Uh, uh, right now, the university is in, tra in, tra in, tra in tra transition, so uh -huh. there's a lot of challenges and uh, you know, ideas, big ideas for new expenditures. Is you know <laughs> we're looking for ways like well, what do we already own? How can we be more efficient? How can we be more effective? How can we work together? We work with the other campuses because the university know. wouldn't want to be sued, right? Yeah. Right. right. So right. to think how serious it is that maybe that you know just thinking of it as under legalities, right. maybe you have more funding. I don't know. Right. You know? And, and some of the things that are that are happening that are, or being planned to happen uh, with uh, there is a statewide audit group, and they do different audits, and some of those findings would recommend potential, you know. They might say, yes, you need to spend this money. Yeah. You need to do it now. Or, uh -huh. that, that, that's where, we, where, in the IT world, a strong auditing body can actually help an institution. Uh -huh. by, you know, we want them to find these things because then they can recommend to the, you know, to, to the, the you know, however high up it needs to go to the Board of Regents, you need to spend $2 million on shoring up your infrastructure security. I love that. Well, I didn't realize how dependent everything is going on, you know, I mean, really, this is, it's like everything we do seems to be coming into, you know, dependent on this data and IT. I mean, everything is, I, mean, this, that, that I, really didn't I didn't really with. think that way before. It's something we really struggle to educate the populace as a whole with. Um, this, this. The IT in, in the last 10 years has really gone from being a cost, uh, a cost center to be more of a service center where we actually don't cost anything anymore, we're actually providing something. And that's been a very different mentality for a lot of businesses and organizations to pick up on. Uh, one of the big things for the university system as a whole that we've really been able to flourish in with this, this whole budget cuts, one of the only good things that's come out of it, is it's caused us to really have to relook and uh, reanalyze our organizational maturity. And it's come, you know, come to fruition that there was a lot of processes and policies that we didn't have in place that we can save a lot of money and save a lot of problems if we just implement them. Uh -huh. We are currently in the process of coming up with an IT governance uh, committee. In that, we will uh -huh. come up with a lot of processes and policies that both me and Max are going to have to follow. And that we're going to actually have some great guidelines and mission statements to really try and work towards. Uh -huh, good. So, so it's, uh -huh. that sounds good. I'm looking at the clocks because we're going to have to start going. But uh, thank you so much for, uh, for answering all these questions and explaining so much.